Well, I'm going to continue with the remaining months of the year as fall is approaching to continue in Revelation. I've sort of tracked it in my mind to go the rest of 2022 that way. And what we've done so far the last year is really hit on the key portions in the book. And it's been very profitable to trace the optimistic theme of Revelation. Because the book is so often taught pessimistically and often very cynically when really it's a book of hope and glory of the consummation of Christ in His kingdom. And it's a revelation of Jesus. More than a revelation of a plan and a timetable, which they are, it is a revelation of a person. And last time, just a couple weeks ago, we, we looked at what could be called the climax of the book and really the climax of the Scriptures in chapter 19, we looked at the glorious, invisible return of the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes back to this world to claim the world that is His and to establish His kingdom on the earth. We considered how His coming will be both a joy and a relief for all the saints, but it will be a terror and a final judgment for all who have rejected His Gospel. And there's really two sides in history. There's the kingdom of God who overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And there are those in the kingdom of Satan who are punished with the wrath of the Lamb. That's what's revealed when the veil of revelation is lifted. These two opposing kingdoms in conflict. And the one who is on the throne is Christ. So my plan is to spend the next couple months, I wanted to sort of camp on the final chapters in the book, just like I spent the first couple months of the year on the first opening chapters that get skipped a lot of times. Sometimes we get to the end with the second coming and then we sort of look at it and go, heaven, heaven, okay, and we close it. But I want to spend time talking about our heavenly hope because there's two full chapters with great descriptions. And I thought that would be a great way to sort of end the year, just thinking of our heavenly hope. But before we go on to the glorious heavenly features of chapters 21 and 22, there is a crucial, solemn day on Christ's calendar that transitions His coming and His new heaven and new earth. And we can't skip over it if we're going to touch the highlights of Revelation. Before God's eternal, consummate creation can be ushered in and restored in its full glory in the cosmos, He must deal with the remaining problem. He must deal with every last sinner who isn't covered with the blood of the Lamb. He will be praised for eternity by the, in the fullness of His glory. Every attribute will be seen by the saints as something marvelous and unsurpassed in anything they saw in this world. And that includes the attribute of His justice. And every sin, and I mean every single sin that has ever taken place, will be shown to have been personally punished by God. And there are only two ways. Those whose sins will be punished by God in Christ on the cross. 
and those whose sins will be punished in receiving their own divine judgment. But every sin will have been said to have been dealt with by God. None will be swept under the rug because He is perfect and holy. And this chapter shows that. And it makes sense as God was closing the canon and and putting the last chapters in His Word that He would include this great and ultimate day where He deals with sin once for all. The title for my sermon is The Last Judgment. The Last Judgment. And I cannot think of a more sobering passage than the one we will look at. Well, we must look at it because we must be sobered. We live in a very frivolous society. We're very prone to lose the seriousness and the solemnness of humanity's state before a holy and righteous judge. Our culture wants to be constantly entertained and it's very whimsical, but this is serious. And we must have this seriousness in our eyes as we talk to an unbeliever about their soul. All will face this judge. Before jumping into the text, I want to briefly comment that you and I need to also contemplate this last judgment. There's a temptation, I think, to sort of block it out of our thinking. For one reason, we want to block it out because it's a hard doctrine. To think of the judgment of sinners, of eternity. It's it's difficult, and it should be difficult for us. It's also easy to block it out of our thinking, because in our confidence through the Gospel, we might think that we don't need to be sobered by it. In other words, there's a temptation to think of the day of judgment as irrelevant to us, because we know we're secure. And while there is some truth that we are to be confident and even rejoice that we are coming boldly before the throne of grace, that doesn't diminish the sobriety and the weightiness of this coming day. Scripture over and over assumes that there are present effects of the day of judgment upon the lives of believers. And at the end of the sermon, I'll touch on a few by way of application. As I said, we live in a frivolous society that is often really, to call it what it is, is marked by unbelief about these things. It's a joke to think about a coming day of judgment. And I think it even seeps into the church as many don't even think about the day of judgment. And I wonder if many people in the church need to repent of unbelief because Scripture is clear that belief is results in actions. And we often don't act like we believe this doctrine. I like this quote from A.W. Tozer. Tozer said, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. End quote. As Richard read from 2 Peter, people are scoffers about the day of judgment. And yet that day will be more real than any day that they've ever had. 
There are parts of Revelation, as we've seen, that are difficult to interpret and require tremendous charity from believer to believer. But the doctrine of Judgment Day is plain. And I would argue it is a hill for us to die on. We may not know the timetable leading up to it, and we may not be able to know the sequence of events with dogmatic precision. But we do hold, as the church, through the ages, that there is a coming and fixed day of reckoning. Final judgment, often called the last judgment. And it's often titled, based on our passage, the great white throne judgment. And this day of judgment is not just isolated to Revelation 20 at the end of the canon. It's actually hinted at and anticipated throughout the Scriptures. I'll just give you a quick few in the New Testament. Romans 2.5 refers to it as the day of wrath. The book of Jude calls it the judgment of the great day. Paul, while preaching in Acts 17, part of his evangelism, Paul says in his preaching in verse 31 of Acts 17, God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. Every day draws closer to that ultimate day. And each day should be lived in light of that day. I've always liked this quote from Martin Luther, which I think I've quoted it before. Martin Luther said, quote, There are two days in my calendar, this day and that day. End quote. As we soberly approach this passage in Revelation 20, I want us to consider how real that day will be for everyone there and how real it will be for you. Remember that John is going through persecution and so are the churches he is writing to in this context. And similar to us, what's happening in their day was very real to them. Overwhelmingly real. The anti-Christian Roman Empire was very real. The empire-wide persecution was very real. The possibility of martyrdom was very real. Real And what John wants to show in this passage is that there is a reality that should be even more overwhelming. Also very real. John throughout this book has been lifting the veil and revealing that there are divine kingdom realities just as real as our everyday lives. In fact, I would argue that it, it could, the case could be made that it's more real because what we see is often very distorted. And here, in our passage, John writes what he sees. And what he sees is that the unbelieving world, in its defiance of God, in its pomp and circumstance, is on a collision course with the day of reckoning. That's what's real. The boasting of unbelievers and the, um, the establishment of Satan's kingdom may seem overwhelming but it's on a collision course with the day of judgment. These verses describe for us the final courtroom scene of human history. Every lost sinner has an appointment 
for this day in court. And it's a court of no appeal. It's, it's every lost sinner is going to be individually summoned for their day in court to take their stand before God's judgment bar. And they will stand trial before Him. And God will open the books, as we'll see. And He'll present His case before them. And no one else will be heard but God. The evidence will be presented. It will be irrefutable. No defense will stand up to it. In fact, a rebuttal won't even be offered. The judge will not be sympathetic. And there's going to be not a drop of mercy. And for all who are not in Christ, He will not be available as an advocate. The extension of mercy and repentance will be gone. God will make His verdict upon the guilty and it will be perfect justice. It will be perfect punishment. It will be severe punishment. And it will be eternal punishment. No mistrial, no parole, no hope, and no escape. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These five verses before us in Revelation 20 are just five verses, but they almost carry the weight of the entire Scriptures. And they contain a terrifying scene. May they sober us and drive us to cling even more tightly to the cross. Let's turn to verse 11. Verse 11. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it From His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Now let's consider the setting of this scene. That's always good to do. Back in chapters 4 and 5, we considered that how John's vision of heaven was centered not upon the people, not even upon the angels, but upon a throne. And Now the book, having laid out what transpires on the earth, is circling back to that scene in heaven. The source of all that unfolds in God's plan. And it is the Sovereign One who is on the throne. That is why it's important to look at this book as an optimistic book. It's not like things are going haywire and out of control. No, they're perfectly in control by the One on the throne. And after seeing the second coming of Christ and the establishment of His reign with the saints on the earth, He is fixated back to heaven and sees this throne. And He calls it, very specifically, the great white throne. I'll kind of comment on each of those. The word great speaks to the power of the One who is seated on the throne. White speaks to the purity of the One who is seated on the throne. And the word throne speaks to the sovereignty of the One who is seated. They're great, they're white, and they're sovereign. The the fact that the One seated is all-powerful and all-holy 
and all reigning means that this courtroom has total jurisdiction over the whole cosmos, all creation. And this courtroom has no higher court to answer to. And notice there's only one throne. And it's an absolute monarchy, which, as we mentioned back in chapters 4 and 5, in our American mindset, we're not used to accepting that there should be absolute power. We don't think of that as a good model. We're suspicious of it. And that's because we should be suspicious of it in a fallen world. Because in a fallen world, power does corrupt. But in the kingdom of God, monarchy is good. Absolute monarchy is good. Because the king is all good. And he's the only one who is good. There is no corruption in his office. There's no need for a separation of powers or checks and balances. There's only one office he has. The same king is the ruler, he is the lawmaker, and he is also the judge. And after seeing the great white throne, John sees the one who is seated on the throne. So that brings a question, which we also asked earlier. Who is this one who is seated on the throne? Before I get the Sunday school answer, God, um, we we know that. In the triune Godhead, who is it who is on the throne? I would submit we have more in Scripture than just a generic reference to God on the throne on Judgment Day. But more specifically, theologically, it is the person of the Godhead in the Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in Revelation 5, you remember that who took the scroll and who established the Father's reign in His plan. It was Jesus, God the Son, the Lamb who was slain. Jesus is the King on the throne. And He is the Judge on the throne. Multiple Scriptures in the New Testament attest to this. You don't have to just look at Revelation. So in case you're unsure, here's a few passages about Jesus being the judge at the end of the age. Jesus Himself said, first of all, in John 5.22, Jesus said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Acts 10.39, Peter says, They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day. This is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Romans 2.16, Paul writes, On that day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. We need to rid ourselves of the idea of God the Father being judge and Jesus being only Savior. Jesus is the one presiding on the great white throne. There's an old saying that goes, He stood trial before men, but soon all will stand trial before Him. And it says in our passage, From His presence, earth and sky fled away. 
and no place was found for them. Now this verse almost looks very symbolic and hard, but it really sets up the terror of this scene. The idea here is that His presence as a judge, as a king, will be so awesome and terrifying that there is an attempted escape. The whole earth of guilty sinners, symbolized here as as being in retreat, can't find a place to go. And they want nothing to do with this judgment. There's no confident sinner coming boldly before the throne to make a case. They can't find a place to go. They want to be in retreat. They've marginalized Him on the earth. They've resisted Him in their thoughts and their actions. They've put off the day of repentance. They've played games with Him. But now every sinner, every lost sinner, must come face to face with Him. And He will be no joke to them. He will not be marginalized on this day. All sinners are summoned and must come face to face with Him as their judge. They sat in judgment of Him their whole lives, but He will only sit in judgment of them. And they will be presented exactly as they are in their total sinfulness and with complete guilt and culpability and shame, naked before the One for whom they must give an account. There's really no more frightening scene in the whole Bible. Verse 12 elaborates on the proceeding that takes place once they are summoned and cannot flee. John writes this, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. There's a few things I want to note about the assembled group that is before this throne. And it is a very large group. The first thing is, John says he saw the dead. Look at what it says. I saw the dead. This is important because we need to know how ultimate this judgment day is. This is the day of all days. It's not just those sinners who are alive on the earth before it's destroyed. Not just the sinners from the days of tribulation when the world is as worse as it can be. This is every sinner who has ever lived since the beginning. Every sinner in the pre-flood world. Every sinner in the ancient world. Every sinner from the Middle Ages. Every sinner from the modern era. Every sinner up until the end of time, every soul will appear before Christ. And note next, John gives a very important addition to that as he comments on them. He says, the great and the small. Great and small. It's as though he wants to emphasize no one is left out from this group. The idea here is that there are no exceptions. 
No individual sinners are left out or shown partiality. Great speaks to those in history who lived with great power in their days. They seemed untouchable. Those who seemed like unmovable forces in their time. Alexander the Great. Napoleon the Great. Hitler, Stalin, Mao. All all of these notorious sinners who we know are evil and are going to be there on that day. They're summoned to this day of judgment. The ones who sin so boldly on the world stage appear at the judgment and they're looked on before this greater throne. They're going to be summoned by the King of Kings to be judged for their lives. And John's audience would, of course, probably think of Caesar and all the other corrupt leaders who had been oppressing the church. This would have been a sign to them that, yeah, they're not always going to be in power. They're going to someday give an account to the real king. And yet, he doesn't just say the great. Lest anyone simply point out that these notorious evil men are going to appear at judgment and maybe excuse themselves that they're not that bad. Like, just, just the really bad will be there. He says the small are at the scene as well. The small. Small speaks to being small in identity. Small in visibility on the world stage. They're just your common person. They're breathing and going through life about their business and obscurity. Maybe they seem like a good citizen. Obscurity. But on the Day of Judgment, it will be shown that nothing is obscure for God. He knows all their hearts. He does not overlook anyone, but is intimately acquainted with all their ways. These two will be summoned, and they cannot blend in like they did on the earth. They too must come face to face to give individual accounts before this judge. So it's, it's comprehensive. Every sinner, every kind of sinner will appear before this throne. And it continues by saying, books were opened. The books were opened. This refers to the whole lives of the people being shown as evidence against them. The rest of the verse indicates this. Um, what the books are about. It says, And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. No one, great or small, will be shown to be a good person before God. There is going to be records of every last sin which must be judged by God. No one will be shown to be victims but they'll be shown to be the culprits and lawbreakers that they are before His bar of justice. No one will be able to compare themselves with worse sinners. The outright sinners who defy God's commands with a high hand will be there and stand trial. But so will the self-righteous, moralistic, perhaps church-going people who were just you know fake Christians. They're going to appear before the throne. 
and stand trial and give account for their sin. And let's also remember, when we're thinking of the books being opened, remember that really it's just one sin that is all that it takes for God to judge. Every single one sin is infinitely heinous because it is against an infinitely holy God. It took one sin to curse and condemn the world in the garden. And yet, even with one sin being enough to condemn a person, think about the fact that every person will have a book, a book of sins. And they will appear before Christ with a lifetime of defiance against Him. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, God will bring every deed into judgment. It, you just think about this. Every sinful thought, every useless word that we just said, every ill motive, every evil deed, public and secret, Every sin of commission, but every sin of omission. All the things people should have done, but didn't. And remember that man's righteousness is as a filthy rag before God because it is not for his glory. It is a whole lifetime of sinfulness because everything that is not done in faith is sin. Every sin from childhood. Every sin from youth. Sins we forgot. Every sin from adulthood. Every sin in old age, all of it is recorded by God in the books. That's what's being indicated here. God has kept a record perfectly. And it's frightening. It's meant to frighten us. But people don't think it's going to be that bad. It's not going to be that bad. People are convinced that there is a category of sinners who will give an account, but they're not in that category. And man is deceived to thinking that they have reached a certain bar of justice and they place that upon God rather than looking at God's bar of perfect justice. R.C. Sproul put it this way once. He said, modern man is, being, is betting his eternal destiny, that there is no final judgment for them. That's a bad bet. As the beginning of this passage says, no one is going to feel confident to stand. They're going to try to flee and won't be able to. As another preacher said, self-righteous sinners will melt like a wax candle before a blazing furnace. I remember seeing, I, I think it was a meme or something, but it said that popular phrase, only God can judge me. And it says, well, that should scare you. <laughs> only God could judge me. But we just twist that. and We think God is like us. There's another book which is mentioned in the midst of this. In the midst of all mouths being shut because the books are opened, another book is opened commonly cited by Christians. John writes that after these books are opened, another one was opened, and he says, which is the book of life. 
It is called the book of life in contrast to these books of death. It's contrasted with the other books of the dead who are brought before the throne. This book isn't new in the book of Revelation. It's not mentioned for the first time. It's mentioned twice earlier in the book, in chapter 13 and in chapter 17. It's made clear that the Lamb's book of life contains the names of all God's elect people. All those covered by the blood of the Lamb. Every believer is chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Names are not being added to the book as each individual sinner repents and is saved. But God the Father has decreed that these be saved and it's been given as a gift to the Son. This book is eternal and it's in God's divine counsels. The people in the book of life were born sinners, each in their own time of redemptive history. But at some point in their lives, they were granted faith and were given new life. Thus, the record of their names is the book of life. Their books, full of lifetimes of sins, have already been judged in the Lamb who was slain. It's interesting, they don't have books anymore because of the substitutionary work of Jesus. Their books are remembered no more. He no longer holds a record of their sins. All they have recorded in the judge's records are their names in the book of life. And this book for now is just opened, and we'll get back to it at the end. But the court case continues. He sort of just leaves that hanging. The court case continues. What about the books that were opened? Verse 13 continues by showing the power of this one who summons the dead. Look at verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the death who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now, it might seem strange to us that the sea is mentioned. It's mentioned because the audience would have understood it. Uh, The sea in the ancient world was often referenced as a realm that a person would be irretrievable from. Because if you went and you were lost at sea and you, you had sunk with your ship to the very bottom, your body was never again to be found. You were beyond recovery. John's point is that the summons of Christ will be so powerful and so extensive that nothing can hold back the dead from being summoned. The sea will give up the dead who are in it. And then he says, death and Hades will give up the dead that were in them. And he's speaking here of the realm of the grave. The realm beyond the grave. Beyond the physical realm. When someone dies and their body is left behind to become worm food, Scripture is clear that their soul is in another place. Their soul is, if it's not in God's heavenly present, is in a realm in which they are tormented, waiting for the day of judgment. We call this Hades. 
on this day, their soul and body will be reunited in a resurrection. The sea gives the idea that their bodies are recovered. Death and Hades being emptied is like their souls being recovered. And they all will appear as they once were, but in a resurrected body to appear before this judge. And it says they will be presented before Him for their day in court. And it continues with the same emphasis that was at the end of verse 12. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. It's all going to be proclaimed from the housetops. Notice it says they were judged. It's not an investigation. All of them who are summoned are guilty. And it's all going to be laid out and it's all going to be dealt with. Which leads to the final two verses. The most sobering part of this whole scene, the judge's sentence. The judge's sentence for the guilty. Look at verses 14 and 15. And we'll make some comments. Then... Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Having presented all the evidence before them, the guilty will be given the judge's verdict. And it will be irreversible. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the point. At Matthew 25, Jesus says He will tell sinners, Depart from Me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the gravity of their sin. This was for the devil and his angels. And you're going there? The, the veil lifted in Revelation shows that everybody who is not of the kingdom of God is actually joined to the kingdom of Satan. And the verse before our passage in Revelation 20.10, it actually says that the devil is thrown into the lake of fire himself. The devil is not in charge of hell. The devil is sentenced there as well. It says that he's thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And this is the punishment that all in his kingdom will experience as well. Scripture is clear that it is eternal conscious punishment. I want you to, to think of those terms. They're very important. Each one is important. There are theologians who articulate this and defend it. Eternal, conscious punishment. Each of those terms are important to keep in mind when understanding the doctrine of hell because each one is under attack in its own way in a spirit of unbelief. We have to emphasize that it's eternal in that there is no end in sight. This is, I think, maybe the hardest part of hell to grasp. That there is no hope. That it's final. No eventual purge. No eventual redemption. 
no annihilation. These are things that some people propose to make it more palatable. That's not what Scripture says. Eternal. It's often contrasted with eternal life. It means eternal. It is also conscious punishment. Conscious punishment. And why is that important to emphasize? Because there are also people who have tried to make it more palatable by making it seem like hell won't really be experienced as a painful thing. That it's that the sinner in hell will maybe descend into sort of an, a mindless goo, a, a, a mindless, unfelt experience. Maybe insane. There are theologians who have proposed this. That is also not the way Scripture portrays it. Scripture is plain that those who are there, like Satan, will be tormented. Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Read Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. He's he's suffering. It's conscious. It is eternal. It is conscious. And third, it is also punishment. This too has received pushback by theologians who don't want to really deal with what it's saying. There have been several over time who have tried to explain hell as a, a sort of place that sinners almost prefer to be at as sinners. Like, like they're just saying to God, I don't want you and I'd rather be here. Or sometimes the phrase is given that hell is a, like a door that is locked from the inside. And there's a sense in which sinners do not want God. They don't want His glory. They are totally depraved. But many times these explanations go too far. Again, in an effort to make it more palatable. No, uh, sinners want out. Sinners do not want to be in hell. It's no one's place of preference. Again, read Luke 16. It is a place of torment and anguish. At the beginning of this scene, remember, there are people trying to flee this judgment. Also, to add on top of that, verse 14 says, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Not necessarily meaning literal, but they, they're thrown, meaning it is not their choice. They are sentenced by the judge. They didn't walk in. They were put there. Based on their own sinfulness, based on their own guilt and culpability, but it is their sentence. No, it is a lake of fire. Also, one of the hard aspects to grasp about this passage, I don't think there could be a more horrific description of a place than a lake of fire. Fire is often used to describe the sinner's destination. There are questions that come up sometimes, whether fire is merely symbolic or whether fire is literal. I personally think that often those kind of discussions miss the entire point. We don't need to dissect this and wonder the exact nature of what it is. Scripture has given us enough to know it is the severest of punishments. And it's a futile effort to try to minimize it and to calm our minds. Well, it's not that bad. It's just symbolic. Even if fire is symbolic... 
Would it make sense that a metaphor would be less than the thing that it represents? Oftentimes it is. Oftentimes the reality is worse. It's no comfort to set any mind at ease. It's not less severe than how it's described. And this being said, if we're grappling about the nature of it, I think people also miss the, the heartbreak of this. We're just talking about, oh, I, I think it's literally. I've seen armchair people who just talk about hell just so stoically. Now, this is horrific. This is heavy. Which is why we need to articulate that it is real. I will say this about the fire. That being said, it is noteworthy that Scripture refers to it as fire more than once which seems to indicate the torment will be more than just psychological with these physical resurrected bodies if it makes sense it is also physical punishment these people not only have their souls brought before the throne but they are joined to incorruptible new bodies that won't die in a lake of fire that's the imagery Jesus had physical punishment even on the cross as He bore the wrath of God. The whole of the curse absorbed in this sentence. John simply says, this is the second death, the lake of fire. Jesus said in Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There is a good place for fear. Fear is very appropriate with regard to the final judgment. We're commanded to fear it. In verse 15, He returns again to that one book that was opened in the revelation of all things, as it comes sort of to a close, before the final chapters with heaven, it says this one phrase that is left. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's only one group who will be spared the terrors of divine judgment. And it is those who have been reconciled to God through the salvation in Christ. Every other person in history will be sentenced. This is how the chapter ends before the final two chapters about the new earth. The rest of it is glorious. But it's interesting that before he gets to the glorious, the Spirit wanted to put in the canon that the whole chronicle of Scripture since Genesis 3 is wrapped up with God dealing with Every sinner. It's all unveiled to us. And God has seen fit that we would have it all. I wanted to give a few points of application because the thought might be, well, what do we do with this? What do believers do? What what effect does that future day of judgment have upon the church? The, The so what? As I said earlier, Scripture over and over assumes that this day of judgment has present effects upon believers. 
I'll close by listing a few of the effects that this day of judgment should have upon believers, each with its own, each with its own point of application. This is just for my own reflection. Number one, this great judgment. There is a present effect that, of, that this day has on how we view God and ourselves. There's a present effect that this day has on how we view God and ourselves. The last judgment reminds us that God is not slack concerning His promise. It's not going to continue as it is. It looks like sin is getting away with and sinful people are doing what they want. For one thing, it shows us God is not going to be mocked. But with perfect precision, He will deal with sin. We should never blame Him as being idle when evil seems to persist. Or when evil persists against us. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. God will have final vengeance. Another aspect of God and ourselves, this day of judgment should also cause us to see how worthy He is. That no sin will go unpunished shows how righteous He really is. We have no idea how good this God is. It should cause us to not only marvel at His holiness, But get this, it should get us to marvel at His grace toward us. The shocking reality of Revelation 20 was not that the books were opened. It's that there was a book with those who were saved. The shocking reality is not that sinners are going to hell. The shocking thing is that anyone has shown mercy. This is usually a good indicator of who is in Christ and who is not. Your reaction to this scene could say a lot about the state of your heart. Are you amazed by grace? When you think of this courtroom scene, do you see it and see the great and the small and go, "Ah, yeah, I deserve to be there. I should be there. The, the merely religious churchgoer looks at this and simply just thinks, well, of course I'm saved. It's this crazy world that's messed up. They're going to hell. Yeah, judgment day. No. The saint is the one who cannot even lift their gaze toward heaven. And they're saying, God, have mercy upon me, the sinner. The saint is the one who hears about the great and the small in the judgment, and they think that should be me among them. They think about their name being in the book of life, and they're astounded at His grace toward them. The fact that Jesus bore our sins, everything written in our book, that book of sins, the fact that the wrath that was due to us on the day of judgment was placed upon His shoulders, This should cause us to walk humbly with Him. This should cause us to abound with thanksgiving toward Him. Joy, real joy for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This great judgment to come 
should make us consider the great sin that had to be removed and consider how great a sacrifice had to be made if we were to be reconciled to God. We should say with Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Is that you? Number two, there's another present effect that this day of judgment should have upon us. It should have the effect of, on, of um, let's see, there is a present effect of how we examine ourselves before God and keeping us from false assurances. It has a present effect of causing us to examine ourselves before God and it removes false assurances. There is an indi- a, a prevalent idea that the way you remember whether you're saved is you look back at the date that you asked Jesus into your heart and when you feel condemned, you just remember that day. That's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. How do you know if you're in Christ? You look at your life today. You look first to the cross, knowing that you boast only in His work. But that work is a work that produces fruit. When you consider the day of judgment, you realize that there are going to be many who come on that day and say, Lord, Lord, and He'll say, I never knew you. We have to examine ourselves. Not live in fear, but live with wisdom and circumspectly looking at ourselves. This whole book of Revelation, I would argue, is actually to the saints to overcome. And Jesus wants you to know, are you overcoming? Are you going to be among those who have the crown of life? Or among those who presume upon His riches, the riches of His grace? Many presume that they belong to the Lamb, but they're in love with this present world. They're a part of the kingdom of Satan. Many will cower in the face of persecution. But Scripture is clear, no cross, no crown. As the Scripture reading said earlier in 2 Peter 3.11, what sort of persons ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So thinking about the day of judgment, it, it does have an effect to spur us on towards sanctification. And we shouldn't ignore it. Number three, what other effect does the day of judgment have on us? I want it to remind us that remembering the last judgment should have a present effect on our witness. I would be very remiss if I didn't mention our witness in this world. Contemplating the final judgment should prompt us and make us constrained to preach the gospel to those we know who are going to appear at this day of judgment. It should prompt us, as Jesus said, to to go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come into the banquet. It should make us feel very small when we are ashamed of the Gospel. We need to be bold for the Gospel. Not easy. But when we contemplate judgment, when we contemplate the stakes, it certainly does make us emboldened. Paul said to the Corinthians, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I'll give one final point of application. I've made an assumption in those first three points. 
that all of us here know the Lord. Maybe someone here does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe there is someone here who, in the hearing of my voice, heard about the day of judgment and has not made a decision whether they will put their faith in Him and repent. To this person, your point of application is that today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. That's the devil's day. Tomorrow, the 11th hour. Not everyone's going to get that chance. And judgment day is approaching. And Christ's hand is extended for repentance, for salvation. Flee from the wrath to come. Go to Christ. He is, you are a great sinner, but He is a great Savior. And He saves to the uttermost all who come in Christ. Let's pray and worship the God who is sovereign and who will bring history to its end. Father, as we consider the revelation of the end, we know that You have appointed today to live for You. You have given us these promises that are sure, that we can depend on, and they are sobering. Lord, we confess that were it not for Christ, were it not for our refuge, we too would be among the many on the path to destruction. We thank You so much for Christ. We thank You so much for the full pardon of forgiveness in Him. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit. May You please strengthen us, empower us to live lives walking in a manner worthy of the Gospel. And help us to preach that Gospel as long as we live. Lord, we pray that You would do a work in us as we continually fellowship today and as we talk in in our conversations, I pray that You would be central. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.